Hi, I'm Kayla. And I'm Alicia, Kayla's mom, and you're listening to True Crime Exposed. to the final parts in this horrific case, the case of the Moore's murders. And yes, I said final parts. Part three ended up being so long, I am splitting it into two parts, but no worries. There will not be a week in between the two parts. I will be releasing them back to back. So you will have the final part of this story all together, all ready to finish out this week. And we're just going to hop right into it. We know this case is absolutely horrific. And like I said last time, please make sure to pay special attention to the victims' names in this case. Don't only remember Ian Brady and Myra Hinley. Try to remember this case by the names of their victims. Because we don't care about Ian and Myra. They suck. We know that. But we very much care about Pauline, John, Leslie, Keith, and Edward. With that, are you ready to finish this case? All right, so we are back for the third and final episode in the telling of these horrific murders, and we left off last week with Ian and Myra heading to trial together for the murders of Edward Evans, Leslie Ann Downey, and John Kilbride. But before we get into the details and conclusion of the trial, I want to get into Ian Brady and Myra Hinley, their backgrounds, and how two evil people could even come together in this detrimental way. I feel like their backgrounds always give some clarity as to what built these monsters, or they leave us with confusion because I think it's such a push and pull of nature versus nurture. Like some people were definitely made into monsters and some people are just born evil. I don't really get it. I wish there was like a completely clear picture of how someone gets to this point so that we could prevent these things, but that's just not reality. Or maybe it's both. Yeah. I do think it is usually both, but then you, I don't know. You just hear of those people that have like a perfectly fine childhood and you're like, why? Uh, They were born that way. But (laughs) yeah, I know. And then you hear of people who were definitely made that way. So who knows? We're going to start off with Ian Brady, though. So he was actually born in Glasgow, Scotland on January 2nd, 1938. Now, we know the murders he and Myra committed were done in Manchester, England. And there is a reason that Ian ends up in England instead of Scotland. But we will dive into that in a moment. So he's born here to a single mother by the name of Margaret Stewart, a.k.a. Maggie. And there were actually multiple sources that said his mom's name was Peggy. But the book I read and some other sources called her Margaret slash Maggie. So I don't know why multiple other sources say Peggy, but I'm going to go ahead and go with my book source and call her Maggie. So she names her baby Ian Duncan Stewart. And Ian never knew who his biological dad was. But Peggy, she was a hard worker and she really tried to do Peggy what- or Maggie. Oh, my gosh. Did I just say Peggy? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my God. 
much. I got confused. I confused myself. <laughs> Maggie was a very hard worker, and she really tried to do what she could to provide a life for her little baby. She was working as a waitress to earn money for her little family of two, but it just wasn't enough. She couldn't afford trying to care for baby Ian. And feeling like she was failing, she actually decided to give him up for adoption. Now, this isn't like an official adoption through an agency or anything. This was unofficial, her just sort of handing Ian over to this local family that she knew. They were there in Glasgow, and they were the Sloan family. And Maggie would always keep t- keep in touch with Ian. She visited him regularly, but I don't think she made it clear that he was that she was his actual mom until he was older. So clearly, she loved him, and it does seem like she was just doing what was best for him, since she felt like she couldn't care for him while trying to be the sole provider at the same time. So, what age was this at? He was like four months old when she gave him up. So, yeah, it was pretty early on. Baby? Yeah. I was thinking it was like a toddler. Yeah. No, I think it was just in those first few months of his life. She tried, but she kept not being able to like pay for a babysitter. She felt like she was having to leave him alone too much. And she was just like, I've got to give this baby up. But it sounds like she visited him every day and on the weekends. So she stayed in really close contact with him. Okay. And it seems like the Sloans were a really good family. Ian actually had a pretty good childhood with them. They had four children of their own that Ian was raised with. Ian was the youngest of all of these children. And although they loved Ian and gave him a good life, they started to struggle with his behavior as he started growing older. So it was rumored that Ian hurt animals. However, Ian himself says that he did not hurt animals and that he loved animals. And he does like show that he cares about animals in some different ways. Like he loved his dog puppet. There were animals throughout his life that he really cared for. He says like he watched this horse die once and it really affected him. So I don't know what to believe. I could see it being rumored just because he is evil and I think people do want to believe there's some sort of sign and hurting animals is that sign. But then I also don't trust Ian Brady either. So while he did care for some animals, I also feel like I could still see him hurting an animal because there were humans. Yeah, there were humans he cared for and he still killed kids. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. I would not be surprised if these rumors about like him abusing animals are true, even though he He claims that it's not. Probably did. Yeah. (laughs) So I read about these rumors in that book that I read, and I'll link the book in the show notes. And in that book, it said that he set fire to a dog once. It says that he broke another dog's legs and that he had actually decapitated a cat. So if those things are true, that's obviously 100% horrific. Who, who's saying this of him? Like neighbors, friends? Yeah, I wonder if it's just people he grew up with. The book didn't really say. It just said like Ian abused animals and it gave these reasons. And then in other podcasts, I've heard them say that Ian himself said like, well, I didn't abuse animals. I actually loved animals. Hmm. So... I'd assume it's just people he grew up around, maybe his siblings. I don't know. Yeah. His like adoptive siblings. He probably did. 
Yeah. I <laughs> would not surprise me in the slightest. No. Now, maybe his other bad behaviors were sort of ways to get attention in his adoptive family. He didn't actually feel neglected by them. He himself says that he had a great life with that family. He just still had this sense that he wasn't a full-on part of the family because he does end up finding out that this family adopted him, which I'm obviously not adopted. You're not, but I have heard people say that. Like when they're adopted, they kind of just feel it. Even if their family's good to them, like maybe they wonder different things. I don't know. Yeah, they probably feel some sense of abandonment if they Yeah. If they do know they're adopted, like why? Yeah. Why did they like why couldn't they make why it did work my or whatever? Not want me or yeah. Yeah. So, this is kind of like even though he says he had this good life, he still said he some like somehow kind of felt like he still needed to gain attention from the family and his siblings. So as he's growing up, he was often throwing temper tantrums and overall he wasn't very social. He did have a hard time fitting in with his peers and eventually it's said that he grew to have this fascination with Nazis. Again, as he grew up, this was post-World War II. I believe it ended around 1945, and he was born in 1938. So I honestly don't know if this was like an obsession with Nazis or an interest in the war itself. I don't actually find it super strange to be interested in learning about World War II. Like, it's kind of like learning about crime, right? Like, it's so horrific you kind of want to know more and like know the psychology behind it. But I also would assume he probably had an unhealthy obsession with it because he probably enjoyed learning about all the people that were killed. Right. There's more to learn about than just the Nazis, like with the war. So did he like focus on the Nazis? Probably. Yeah. Like I read that he learned German, to read that Mein Kampf book, which is by Adolf Hitler, which I'm sure it was published in other languages as well, but I read that he wanted specifically to read it directly from Adolf Hitler in German. So, Hmm. yep. I would assume he enjoyed learning about it rather than kind of learning about it like we do with true crime where we're really diving into the psychology of the people because that's what interests me about world war ii is like how did this happen like how did people allow it to happen but i don't think that's what he was worried about well i mean literally you can look at ukraine yeah like how 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 are we allowing this to happen like how are we letting this happen like (laughs) why is this going on we are yeah i know I know. I've always, I've always wondered that too. Like, how did the world just let that happen? You know, in Germany. But now that, like, uh huh. I mean, I'm not saying it's like completely similar, but it's like, how is Russia just going over and taking Ukraine and nobody's doing anything? Right. I mean, it's like, yes, they're doing sanctions and blah 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 and giving them aid and stuff, but still. Like, lots of people are being killed. How are we allowing that to happen in our world? Just allowing people to be killed. Yeah, because most of us don't want that. I don't even think the people living in Russia and Ukraine want it. Obviously, Ukraine. But even the people living in Russia, I think they're like, why is this happening? Yeah. (laughs) We don't want this. So, yeah, that's my, like, fascination with World War II and with wars. But 
Ian Brady, I think, probably more looked up to Hitler. Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. Like, looked up to how he made that happen, his intelligence, and, like, how he controlled all these people. And killed them. Yep. I'm sure he liked it. So, he says it was a normal fascination, but again, I'm sure he's just BSing people when he tries to explain himself. So, it's around the time that he's nine years old that his adoptive family picks up and moves to the southern outskirts of Glasgow. And when he's there, he attends Shawlands Academy. So, I read that the southern outskirts of Glasgow where they moved to were like the quote-unquote slums of Glasgow. And that it was like a poor area. But then this Shawlands Academy he attended was actually a school for gifted children because honestly Ian Brady was super smart which sucks because some of these killers are truly really intelligent but then they have this evil mark and it's just a shame because they could have done so much good in their lives instead of using their intelligence to cause all this pain but yeah so he went to that school for gifted children And even though he wasn't the easiest child from here on, up till this point, it really wasn't too crazy hard because he did excel in school. He seemed to care about his adoptive family. He was super into music. He loved reading. But from here, he just starts getting into more and more trouble as he started into this life of petty crime. So he starts getting into burglaries and he was caught on multiple occasions going to juvenile court twice for this. And eventually he leaves the Shawlands Academy at age 15 and he just starts working these little menial jobs. So he worked as like a T-boy at a shipyard called Harland and Wolf. And then he also works as a butcher's messenger boy. And this is just like a young boy who deliver who does deliveries for the butcher and is learning the trade. People found that like super weird that he worked as a butcher, but it sounds like he was more like running errands. I don't think he was doing the butch- butchering. Cutting. Yeah. <laughs> He was only 15. Yeah. So at this point, Maggie, Ian's biological mom, she has moved to Manchester, England. And we know he was doing okay with his adoptive family, but Maggie did, was super involved in his life. She was seeing him every weekend, like I said, and oftentimes every day in the evenings throughout the week. So her moving was definitely a huge change for him, but he says he wasn't really affected by it. Maggie moved because she had met a man named Patrick Brady. Patrick was Irish and seemed to be a really good guy. Ian really liked him, and it's sort of obvious because he obviously ends up taking on Patrick's last name, Brady. That's how he becomes Ian Brady. Mm -hmm. And Maggie eventually ends up marrying Patrick around 1950. So after his mom moves to England, Ian is getting into more trouble. He starts picking fights. He's getting really violent. His friend group is this like rough and tumble friend group. And they're kind of all just a bunch of little bullies. And then soon Ian gets himself a girlfriend. Now we know teenage romance and there can definitely be some dramatics and jealousy. I, you know, I dated Jacob in high school and looking back on myself is an embarrassment. You are dramatic. You are a little crazy. But Ian... He takes those toxic feelings to like a whole new level. First of all, he was a violent kisser. So he enjoyed exchanging blood between like 
the mouths of those he was kissing. He liked to like bite their lips and was like, he said himself, he was a violent when he kissed, even when he had his first kiss as as young as age 11. Okay, that's just creepy. Yeah. If someone tried to draw blood on me when they <laughs> kissed me, I'd be like, don't ever kiss me again. You're like, actually never allowed around me again. I don't even want to see you. Yeah. It's like disgusting. And obviously that is kind of a sign. Like at 11 years old, you want to violently kiss a girl and draw blood. Creeper. Yeah. Very strange. So his girlfriend, she had gone to a dance or this little hangout or get together with friends where it was rumored that she danced with another boy. And Ian was obsessed with this poor girl. They had actually dated for quite a long time, but they were always breaking up, getting back together. You know, how many teenage relationships go. Now, in that book I read, it stated that Ian had a domestic violence incident with this girlfriend where he freaked out about this dance or these rumors or whatever, and he pulls out this switchblade knife that he actually always carried with him and had during all those other fights he was picking, and he puts it to his girlfriend's throat before threatening to kill her. Run away. (laughs) Yeah, obviously not good. I hope she broke up with him right after this. They obviously do not end up together. (laughs) Yes. Can you imagine looking back on that after like later on in your life when you see what he did and you're like, yeah. Oh, I dodged a bullet. That was a scary guy. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. So at this point, Ian had been on and off of probation and because he was caught for those burglaries and I'm not sure if it's this incident that he had with his girlfriend or another incident of burglary, but he ends up getting into trouble again. So he's put on probation. And then instead of bringing down the hammer on him and just throwing him into jail because he's clearly not changing his behavior, the court actually sends him out of Scotland, deporting him and not allowing him to live there in Scotland any longer. Oh, wow. Which, like, I don't think How can you, you could do, do that, that now. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> like The United States definitely doesn't do that. And he's from Scotland, so it's like... Yeah. I don't know where you're going to go, but you can't live here anymore. Like, sorry. He just had to go okay. somewhere else. <laughs> so, obviously, he has to be forced to go and live with his biological mom in Manchester, England. Because where else would he go? He's like 16-ish, I think, at this point, just like a young teenager. Yeah. And Ian didn't actually want to leave the Sloan family or leave Scotland, but he had to. And it's at this point that he ends up taking Patrick Brady's last name. And Patrick tried to guide Ian and teach him what he could about life. Patrick worked at Smithfield Market as a fruit seller, so he got Ian a job here at the market as well. But getting close with Patrick and being taught responsibility still didn't help Ian. He continued getting into trouble and eventually he gets caught at that market with stolen lead seals, which were being smuggled. Ian says that he was not the one smuggling these, but that it was the truck driver. However, the truck driver says, nope, Ian loaded these into the truck. It was him. So... Ian, he ends up pleading guilty and just telling the courts what had happened and saying that it was the truck driver. And he's thinking that they'll believe it was an honest mistake and that he didn't know. But the judge in the case is like, nope. And he makes him spend three months in prison while he's waiting for a trial. 
And then at his trial, they obviously see his criminal history and they think this dude definitely needs some discipline. So Ian is sentenced to two years in a borstal, and this is like a defunct type of British youth prison, and it was designed to reform these kids through military-type training. And initially, he's sent to this pretty lax-type borstal in Hatfield, but while he's there, he starts brewing his own alcohol and drinking in prison, getting drunk and (laughs) causing scenes. So now he is sent to a tougher facility, and that was over in Hull. And eventually he is released on November 14th, 1957. He starts working, but he hates all the jobs that he's trying. So at home, he starts studying accounting manuals and literature. Again, remember, he's super smart. And even his mom and stepdad were pretty impressed by his drive to learn and get an education once he was out of prison. But he can't find a job that he likes. And his probation officer is like, hey, sorry, but you do have to get a job. You do have to work. So Ian finds this job at Millard's Merchandising and he starts working as a clerical worker. Millard's Merchandising is a chemical wholesaler that was based in Gorton, Southwest Manchester. And Ian, he didn't pay much attention to the woman that he worked with. He wasn't interested in any of them. So initially, he doesn't notice the bleach blonde girl that had been drooling over him since the day that he started work. And that is Myra Hinley. So Myra Hinley was actually working as Ian Brady's typist. And right away, she was obsessed with him. So I know. If she only knew. She's so annoying. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, don't be obsessed with him. He's gross. So who is Myra? I mean, we know that she's an absolutely despicable person, just like Ian Brady. She's his accomplice in the torture and murder of five children. But where did she come from? So Myra Hindley was born on July 23rd, 1942 in Manchester, England. Her dad was Robert Hindley and her mother was Nellie Hindley. Robert was also known as Bob and he was a strict disciplinarian, but he was also an alcoholic. And he seemed to be a mean drunk. Robert had fought in World War II. And with that, he had learned those strict disciplines. Now, because he was in the war that ended about 1945 and Myra was born in 1942, he wasn't around her much, or I think at all, until she was about three years old. So up until she was three, Nellie and Myra's grandma, Ellen, who she called Gran, helped raise her through these years. And that's the grandma who she lives with later on. I was going to say, is that the grandma of the house? Gran Ellen is the one who is around during Edward's murder. Yeah. So we can't figure out if she's deaf. Yeah. Or I would assume she was old and couldn't hear very much. That's what I'm going to assume. Because it does actually sound, when I got into who she was, it does sound like she's a pretty good lady. So I'm hoping Mm. she was just old or scared. (laughs) So when Robert comes home from the war, Nellie and Robert move into their own house and it's just down the road from Gran Ellen. Things in Myra's life once they moved there did seem to get more violent. The couple had another daughter in this home, Maureen Henley, who we know in this story already as David's wife. David, Myra's brother-in-law who witnessed that murder of Edward Evans. 
And these sisters, they were super close and close and they loved being together. But Robert became extremely abusive towards his daughters as well as his wife, Nellie. Now, there was so much fighting that Myra and Maureen would always end up walking down to their grandma's house. Eventually, their grand Ellen is like, okay, you guys need to move in with me because clearly it's not a healthy environment over at your parents' house. So they do. And like I said, she does seem like a pretty good person who tried to protect these little girls from the hardship of their life. So I'm really hoping she was just too old or couldn't hear on the night that Edward was killed. (laughs) Just did not know what was going on. Yeah. Robert, he was not only violent towards his family, but he also encouraged violence. So instead of telling his daughters to ignore bullies or tell an adult, he wanted them to punch their peers, fight their peers if they had to. (laughs) So there's this incident and it happens at school where a little boy is fighting with Myra and he ends up scratching her face. So when she comes home, she's telling her parents about what happened. And instead of her dad showing her empathy for having to deal with this little douche at her school, Robert tells Myra that he will beat her himself if she doesn't knock that boy out. So Myra's obviously a little scared and nervous, like she doesn't want to be beat up by her dad. So she goes out and she finds this boy. And she walks up to him and she does, in fact, knock him out. Wow. Later on, she, yeah. Later on, she recounts, quote, at eight years old, I scored my first victory, end quote. So we can tell that Myra doesn't necessarily have the best example in her dad. He beats her. He beats her mom. And Myra learns that this violence gained her the approval of her dad. However, he doesn't want anything to do with her later on in life when she's caught for the murders of these children. Like, he was absolutely sickened by what his daughter has done. And Myra, she does kind of go back and forth. So there's times where she says, like, oh, he hit her once. But then there's times where she says he beat her violently. I know he was fighting with her mom, for sure. I don't know how much he was like how violent he was with his daughters. Obviously, he wasn't a very good guy. But I guess when he heard about what she had done, he was like mortified and he cut her off. Whereas like her mom and grandma and sister did not. Hmm. So I don't know. This is That's all kind of Myra's recount of her life. Yeah. So in 1957, she actually ends up going through this other tragedy completely unrelated to her family. So it's one of her best friends, Michael Higgins, that asks her to go swimming one day when Myra is 15 years old. He was two years younger than Myra, and they had become friends after she stopped someone from bullying him. But she did not want to go swimming that day, so she's like, no, I'm not going to go. And while Michael is swimming by himself, he actually tragically drowns. And she started hearing about all this commotion down at the water. And she heads over there to the lake or the reservoir. And she actually sees her best friend pulled from the water. And this very much affected her. She blamed herself for him being dead. Yeah, that would be tough. Yeah. Now, through all of this, Myra had enjoyed school and she was a great writer. But just like Ian, she left school at 15 years old and decided to start working as a typist. This is also the time that Myra became super religious while taking classes at a monastery in a Catholic church. 
And through this, her family was super proud of her. So they give her this prayer book, this prayer book. And that's the same prayer book that we know a code was found in. The code that led investigators to the locker at the train station containing the pornographic images of Leslie Ann Downey and that audio tape. So she did not use that prayer book for good reasons. No. And it's in her late teens after she dyes her hair that horrible bleached yellow color that she reconnects with a boy she had gone to school with, Ronnie Sinclair. And the two, they started dating. He was a hard worker, but Myra sort of looked down on him for being like this boring working class man. But at 18 years old, when Ronnie proposed, Myra agrees to marry him. And while pretty much all of Myra's family loves Ronnie, her mom's a little worried about her marrying her very first boyfriend. And the thought starts to grow in Myra's mind as she realizes that Ronnie might not be the one for her. So soon after this engagement, Myra goes to work for Millward's Merchandising, where she meets Ian Brady. As I said earlier, Myra immediately notices Ian, but Ian doesn't notice her. So regardless of this, Myra ends her engagement to Ronnie because she sees something at work that she wants and she realizes that she could never want Ronnie the way she wants Ian Brady. And once her relationship with Ronnie ends, that infatuation spirals. Yeah, so before Ian even recognized her, she breaks up with Ronnie. She knows she wants Ian that bad. I'm surprised she could get two boyfriends. I know. Seriously. (laughs) And I think Ronnie was like really sad and he wanted to get back together with her and stuff. But I'm sure later on in his life, he's thanking the heavens. Yeah. But then it's like, if she married Ronnie, would things have been different? Or would she have done evil things? That's the thing. Like, if these two did not get together, would bad things still have happened? Or is it this like tornado of them being together? Hmm. It's weird. Yeah. So this is when Myra starts writing in a journal. And I remembered on Morbid Podcast, they read some of these journal entries out loud. And I had to share some with you. So I went back and listened to them. And that's on episode 166 of theirs covering this case. And they say that the first journal entry in this journal ever reads, Ian looked at me today. Wow. And (laughs) that's all. (laughs) So then there's this other journal entry and she's wondering to herself if Ian is courting her at all. And she still said she says she still feels the same way about him. And then after this, she writes how she had never even spoken to him yet. And then again, she writes about how she finally speaks to him and that she will now be changing herself. (laughs) I don't know if that's to get him to like her. She says that her journal will notice her change (laughs) now that she's spoken to Ian. And then at one point, she writes about how she loves Ian and he's homesick and that she would love to mother him. And they're not dating at this point. They had only spoken a couple of times. (laughs) And then she goes on to write things like how she's in a bad mood when Ian doesn't talk to her. She writes hoping that he will love her one day. So when I say Myra was in fact obsessed with Ian, I think this journal makes it pretty clear. Like she was infatuated with him. Yeah. She even writes later on in her life that during this time, she's falling in love with Ian before he ever notices her. She's stalking him outside of work. Like she finds his address 
she walks by his house. She's like very much into getting what she wants. I remember your journals from sixth grade. I know. I have a bunch of journals from sixth grade that have Kayla Waters written all over them, which was not my last name because that's my married name. I was like obsessed with Jacob and I got here, I guess. So it works. (laughs) But this was not quite so good. So all of it ultimately leads Myra to exactly what she wants. And finally, at a work Christmas party, Ian asked Myra if she wants to go on a date. He had started noticing that she was an avid reader like him and that she was pretty intelligent as well. So he started to be more interested in her. I don't know if she started reading in front of him because she knew he liked that. That wouldn't surprise me. She was changing. Yeah, I'm sure she was doing things that he liked on purpose. Yeah. So they have their first date in December of 1961, and they see this biblical movie titled King of Kings. And then the following day, they go to a church service. Now, both of these dates were right up Myra's alley, but Ian actually hated and despised religion and the idea of God. So after the church service, he actually goes and he pees on the building and he tells Myra that's what he thinks of her religion. And regardless of her dedication to this church she goes home with ian and she has sex with him losing her virginity Mm. and then the relationship snowballs from there now eventually with ian's distaste for religion the pair move on from biblical films to often attending x-rated films they also very much loved having wine together and reading to each other in german (laughs) and it was rumored like i said earlier that rumor about him learning German to read that Mein Kampf book. Who knows if that's true and that's why he knew German, but... Yeah. Now, when Myra tries to appeal her conviction for the murders later on in 1979, she writes, quote, Within months, he had convinced me that there was no God at all. He could have told me the earth was flat, the moon was made of green cheese, and the sun rose in the west. I would have believed him. Such was his power of persuasion, end quote. So I could see Myra doing things because she was so obsessed with him. However, I don't think it makes her any less evil because like you're still choosing, you're choosing your boyfriend over children's lives. Yeah. So like, okay, he persuaded you to be a certain way because you're that obsessed. Don't be that obsessed with the dude. (laughs) Like... I still blame, like, I still blame her just as much. Yeah, she's still guilty. Absolutely. So, Ian, he loved photography, and he first started into the explicit photos by taking these of Myra, which we know this turns into a horrible, deviant love of photography when he starts taking photos of torturing kids. They only found those ones of Leslie and Downey, but I wouldn't be surprised if he had more photos that he got rid of. Yeah. Maybe he buried them somewhere. Maybe that's part of what Myra had burned. Remember, she burned stuff Mm. from his office. So. Yeah. Now, as their relationship progressed, they started to spend a lot of time together on Saddleworth Moors, and they got really close. And the more comfortable they got with each other the more they started to talk about a life in crime. So it's in 1963 that the two of them decide they want to dabble into some bank robberies. 
but those robberies never happen. And instead they start talking about killing. So I don't know if the, like the robberies, I wonder if Ian Brady brought them up or Myra, I don't know which one, but more to like see if they would be, the other would be interested in crime. Yeah. And then once they kind of got like them to a far, could they go? Yeah. And then, you know, once they, one of them agreed to that, they were probably like, all right, let's try to slide in here with the killing talk and see if we can get them on board. I just can't even imagine that. Can you imagine? Yes. If someone asks you like, hey, what do you think about murder? Like, would you murder someone? (laughs) Yeah. No. I can't even. Oh, we should plot to go rob a bank. And then who's going to be like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Like, that sounds great. I think we should do that. Yeah, I think we should rape and kill kids. Yeah, that's a great idea. I'd be like, I'd probably be a little scared and be like, oh, hmm, yeah. How to, I'd have to think about that. And then I would ghost them. Yes. Never to be yes. seen again. <laughs> uh, so Ian, he actually ends up asking Myra if there was anyone that she would want dead. And she says, of course. And then she names her ex-fiance, Ronnie, who was like a nice guy. And, like, liked her. And so she tells Ian, like, yes, I would want Ronnie dead. And Ian's kind of shocked, but, like, I think excited that she said yes and wasn't spooked. And so then he asks, like, what's his address? And they actually start planning out Ronnie's murder. And this, I think, is one of the first things that opened those doors to their conversations leading to the killings they actually did together. And even though they planned out Ronnie's murder, it ends Mm. up never happening. Lucky for him. Yeah. I'd be scared if I was him once I found that out. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who were like semi close that probably looked back and thought like my life was saved by one little decision. Yeah. So scary. And then it's soon after this that Ian feels comfortable enough to open up to Myra about his fantasy to rape and kill children. And we know that together they agreed to act on those fantasies. Oh, how do you? <laughs> I don't know how. They're both mentally unstable. I can't imagine being told that by like someone I was dating. Yeah, a normal person would be like, um, no, and see you. <laughs> no, calling the police. You're never seeing me again. <laughs> you can't even look at me. No. Like, oh. it's sickening. Yeah. So obviously, Ian, he's sick, he's evil, he's dark. But I think Myra, she wanted to go along with it to please Ian because she's so infatuated with him. So even though these may not have started out as her fantasies, I think she did get sexual pleasure out of pleasing Ian. Yeah. Like doing whatever for him. So it's that same year that the couple is talking about bank robberies that they do commit their first murder instead. So this escalates pretty quickly, this conversation. Once they start talking about crime, it rolls right into murder. So weeks before this murder, Ian had been photographing Myra's sister, not in a sexual way. I think he was just taking some photographs of her and that's Maureen Hinley. And she was upset. So she had explained to Myra that her boyfriend, David, who we know as her husband later on, 
he had actually been seen hanging out with another girl. Now, I don't know if he was really hanging out with her or if he was just seen walking down the road. Again, they're teenagers, so I'm sure there's all these rumors and this jealousy about him even talking to another girl. And this girl was named Pauline. And this is one of Myra's neighbors, a girl that Maureen had been friends with throughout her school years. And it's on July 12th, 1963, that Pauline Reed is abducted and murdered by Ian Brady and Myra Henley. So Myra and Ian, they had been planning to murder for a while now, and they had these rules. So Ian, he didn't want to murder anyone who they knew, anyone who was connected to them in any way, because he didn't want the killings to be easily tied back to them. He did not want caught. He wanted to do this for the rest of his life. And these victims, they were going to be completely random. They would also bring extra clothing to these murders so that they could burn the clothing they wore during the murder. Things would have to be cleaned immediately, such as their cars. He would always bring luggage where he would store any evidence to be tied back to him. Again, we know evidence was found in luggage at the train station. They would also use false plates on any cars that they used, and they would destroy their murder weapons immediately. And they always wanted to establish an alibi. Ian really wanted everything tied in this neat little bow. So it's on that day Myra is driving a neighbor's van. It's a black van and Ian is riding his motorcycle behind her. It's a Triumph Tiger Cub. And the plan is that he would flash his headlight at Myra once he spotted who he wanted as their first victim. It's a Friday, so Myra and Ian had been at work all day before going home and waiting there until right before they go out to get this victim. Ian was at his parents, and as he leaves, he asks his mom, Maggie, what the time is. Now, he asks this, trying to establish his alibi and have that time burned into his mom's memory. Again, he's pretty smart, like, to even think to be like... Yeah, he's covered a lot of his bases. (laughs) But all those smart people eventually get They caught. think they're so much smarter that, than everyone that they end up being just stupid. You know? Like, they're intelligent, but they're dumb. Yeah, I, a lot of really smart geniuses probably don't have very much common yes, sense. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Like, your book's smart or your street smart. Right. Maybe there's a few people that have both, but sometimes it's one or the other. <laughs> and Ian was book smart. <laughs> so he actually brings multiple knives with him. And he, like, has some under his, like, jacket. He puts on some surgical gloves underneath, like, some leather gloves. He's, like, prepared. He puts binoculars inside the van because he wants to make sure no one's around them on the moors when they're doing this murder. And then they also left a shovel waiting for them at the spot on the moors that they're going to commit this murder. So they're driving down this road called Gorton Lane, where Ian sees a little girl walking that he wants. So he flashes his lights just like planned. But Myra, she doesn't pull over to lure the girl into her van. She keeps driving, and then she soon stops to let Ian know that that little girl was a girl named Mary, who was only eight years old. And her family was neighbors to Myra's mom. She was too connected. Remember, Ian didn't want any ties. Yeah. Even though we know Pauline is tied, but you'll kind of see how that happens. So he agrees that Mary is not the right victim, which Mary's parents finding that out later on 
just kind of like you said, like she's another one that barely got away with her life. Yeah. So they keep going and they're looking for another victim. Now, this is when they see Pauline Catherine Reed. She was 16 years old and dressed up for a dance that she was walking to. She had on a pink skirt and a black top that went perfectly with her dark hair and blue eyes. Earlier that day, she had gone out shopping, hoping that her mom would let her go to this dance that night. And with that hope, she purchased little white high heels that she was also wearing on this night. And as the couple passes Pauline, Ian flashes his headlights. And this time, Myra pulls over and opens her van door, ready to lure Pauline into their evil plan. Now, Pauline's family, they knew Myra's family pretty well. So already, their first victim, they are breaking the rules. Right. Not only did Maureen know Pauline, but Pauline's dad was somewhat friends with Myra's dad. Like, the families knew each other. Plus, wasn't her sister bad at Pauline because Pauline was the girl? Yes. Did Mm -hmm. the sister know Pauline, Myra? Yes. Yes, they had met each other before. So Myra, she shouts to Pauline asking her if she wants a lift to wherever she's going. And she reminds Pauline, like, oh, hey, I'm Myra, Maureen's sister. And Pauline does recognize her. So, yeah. And this seems like an innocent ask to Pauline. Like, how could she have ever suspected anything different than just Maureen's older sister giving her a ride to the dance? Yeah. So Pauline, she hops into the back of that van with Myra and they drive off. Pauline's like, hey, thank you for the ride. I'm headed to a dance if you want to take me there. And Myra is like, of course, but I was actually on my way to look for a glove. I lost a glove out on the moors. Would you mind stopping there with me first? And Pauline agrees. That's how they got the other one too, right? Yeah. So once Myra and Pauline make it to the moors and hop out of the van, Myra introduces Pauline to her boyfriend, Ian Brady. Now Myra says that at this point, Ian and Pauline go alone into the moors. Pauline thinks they are looking for Myra's glove. Remember, Myra always tries to distance herself from these murders. So I highly doubt that she was waiting back at the van while Ian takes Pauline out alone deep into the moors. Yeah. Myra says that after Ian killed Pauline, he comes back to the van and asks her to go wait with Pauline. And she says that Pauline was still breathing when she goes out and sees her, but eventually died before they bury her. Again, I don't think this is the story. Ian, he says that Myra was actually the one leading Pauline to the spot that the couple had planned to kill her, and Ian was trailing behind them. This is a much more believable story because why would Pauline go off into the moors with Ian and think nothing of it? She's 16 years old. She's not dumb. And she had never met Ian. She only knew Myra. And once they're out there, Ian grabs Pauline and he starts to assault her. And he says that she cries out to Myra, begging her for her help. And then she asks Myra to please let Ian know that she was on her period. So she says to Myra, like, please let him know that I'm unwell, meaning she's on her period. She's hoping that this might save her from being raped. But of course, Ian does not care. So they undress her and they rape her together. And it's right after this that Myra lets Ian know 
this girl is actually Pauline Reed. Remember, the rules are to have no connections. And right before Myra lets him know this, he had slapped Myra across the face. So it's almost like he slapped her and she knew that Ian did not know this was Pauline. Mm, and then she's like, this And is- so she, yeah. So I don't know if she was planning on telling him at all till it came out. And maybe she was just going to be like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that's who that was, you know? Mm-hmm. But she, yeah. So she's like, yeah, this is actually Pauline. Like, they're connected. Oh my gosh. So again, we know he hasn't seen her. He's only heard of her from Maureen, Myra's sister. And Myra had agreed to take Pauline as their first victim and keep that fact from Ian. Because I think Myra was mad that Pauline was seen with her sister's boyfriend, David Smith. Myra had actually ripped a locket necklace off of Pauline's neck that Pauline's mom had given to her to wear wear that night and told her that she wouldn't need it where she's going. And that's when Ian had smacked her. So that's kind of what led up to that. And then I guess when Myra had been telling Ian about Pauline weeks before, she had told Ian that she wanted David dead. So she was obviously pretty mad about it. And Ian's like, obviously we can't kill David. That's your (laughs) sister's boyfriend. Yeah. So. So Myra got who she wanted to kill. Yeah. It's like Ian saw her and even though Myra didn't stop for the eight-year-old girl that they knew, she was like, hmm, I know who that girl is. She was with my sister's boyfriend. I am going to stop for her, Mm -hmm. which is so sad because I'm sure there was nothing even happening with Pauline and David. They were probably just friends that were seen talking. Mm, That is sad. Yeah, I know. It's really sad. So at this point... Ian runs back to the van really quick, leaving Myra with Pauline for a bit while he grabs things they will need to bury her and kill her and all of that. And when he returns, Myra had actually tried to stab Pauline with scissors and was sitting on top of her. But Pauline was not dead. So he then slits Pauline's throat with a knife that he brought, but her artery was not severed, so she was still alive. And then he slits her throat a second time. After murdering Pauline Reed, Myra and Ian bury Pauline using the shovel they had already planted out there on the moors. They were able to dig a five-foot grave, and they made sure to memorize where they had put her so that they could revisit where this horrible crime happened. And then they load Ian's bike into the back of that van to drive home together. And as they drive home, they actually saw Pauline's brother walking down the road. He didn't know yet that his sister had just been abducted and murdered by the couple passing by him in that black van. Pauline was raised Catholic by her mom, Joan Reed, and her dad, Amos Reed. She had one brother, and that's the one they passed. His name is Paul Reed, and she loved her family. This was a tight-knit family that found comfort in each other, and the night she was abducted, she was on her way to that dance. This was the Railway Workers Club social dance. And Pauline begged her mom that night to go after her mom says she can't attend. So originally her mom had said yes. And then some of Pauline's friends, their moms say no. So then Pauline's mom is like, well, no, if your friends aren't going, you can't go either. 
but she's a teenager and we know teenagers are relentless when they want something. So she begs and pleads with her mom throughout that evening before Joan finally caves and was like, okay, fine, go for it. But in her gut, she just didn't feel like Pauline needed to go to that dance. And by herself. I know. You wouldn't think Pauline would want to. To go by herself. Maybe there was a boy there. I know. Like maybe there was someone she was interested in. Like obviously there was a reason she really wanted to go. I mean, she had gone out. She bought those high heels. She was looking forward to it. She's like, screwed if my friends can't go. I am going. Yeah. But usually you want to go with your friends. Yeah. Mm -hmm. not show up alone and right so Joan she does help Pauline get ready and that's when she gave Pauline that locket necklace to wear out and she waved to Pauline as she walked out of the home at 7 45 p.m that's the last time her mom ever saw her and Pauline she does actually have a few friends that end up planning to meet her at the dance they don't have cell phones or anything so she doesn't know this right They end up waiting for her, but she never arrives. And her friends had assumed that maybe Pauline got too nervous to show up at the dance that night alone. Like you said, like they were like, maybe she just didn't end up wanting to come. Mm -hmm. Those friends were actually planning to surprise her. So Pauline, like I said, didn't know her friends would be there. And she actually saw one of them while she was walking to the dance. And just right before she runs into Ian and Myra, but her friend doesn't say anything about heading to the dance. I'm assuming kids, like we said back then, aren't just kind of always walking around by themselves. This is a long time ago. So her friend's just walking down the road and she doesn't say anything. And then she just thinks this will be a fun surprise to meet her there at the dance since she's like being brave and going by herself. And then when she obviously never goes they're like oh like they kind of feel bad Mm -hmm. that they didn't tell her they were going to be there because they think she ended up not going because they were not planning to go now when pauline doesn't come home after the dance her parents obviously start to freak out and the panic really sets in once joan and amos realize pauline had never even shown up to the dance they knew right away their daughter would not have ran away pauline had to have come across foul play on her walk They immediately report Pauline as missing, and not only did the police search, but her parents walked and drove around daily looking for her. Joan even talked with Myra Hinley once about the disappearance. Again, their families know each other. Yeah. So Myra, she tells Joan she was so sorry to hear what happened to Pauline. She's telling her that she hopes that the family will find her soon. She's gone. Full well knowing they killed her. Uh, Just another sign that she has her own evil. Yes. Joan, she was filled with so much sorrow and anxiety wondering what happened to her daughter that she's actually eventually admitted into a psychiatric hospital after having a breakdown. But Pauline wasn't found for a very long time. Her family suffered with these questions for years, 24 years to be exact, before Pauline's body was finally discovered in 1987. Wow, that's so long. So long to wait for answers. And then after Pauline's murder, Ian gifts Myra with a record, like a song. And that would become this sick tradition for them. They would dedicate a new record to each of their victims. And when they wanted to remember what they had done, they would start humming that record 
to one another. They are gross. Sitcom. <laughs> yeah. Like, and it would just remind the other person of that specific murder. Ew. Now, remember, Myra and Ian were in an open relationship. Both of them he liked. were bisexual. Yeah. Yes. Both of them say that they're bisexual. So that's why they're kidnapping men. Well, not men. Boys and girls. After, so between Pauline's murder and John Kilbride's murder, Myra starts having sex with a married cop. Which, like, this cop is probably investigating the disappearance of Pauline. And he is in Myra's home having these relations with her. And then soon, Ian, he does get upset about the relationship and Myra breaks it off. How does she get all these boyfriends? I thought you said she was super ugly. I don't know. (laughs) She was. Did you see her? She's like disgusting. And she's evil. So it's like you're even more disgusting. It's not like you're radiating like positivity and an amazing (laughs) personality. But I did hear she's very manipulative. So I don't know if she could manipulate to get what she wants. So the same year of Pauline's murder, but months later in November of 1963, is when the couple abducts and murders 12-year-old John Kilbride. We covered his murder in the last episode, and he is the young boy who was lured by the couple from the supermarket and to the moors. And there is one more murder that Myra and Ian do before getting caught in the Edward Evans murder. And they do this between John Kilbride's murder and the murder of that sweet little 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey, the young girl on the audio tape. Okay, guys, once we recorded this episode, it did end up being too long, so I'm splitting it into two parts. I'm going to end this first episode right here, but the second episode, part four now, will be released at the same time. So go ahead and hop over there to finish out this story.